Welcome, Dr. Colin Banas, to our podcast today. Really excited to have this chance to talk with you. I'll start with just a brief introduction. Colin, you're an internal medicine hospitalist and former chief medical information officer at Virginia Commonwealth University's health system in Richmond, Virginia, where you are today. Colin got his bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia, his MD from Eastern Virginia Medical School, and a master's in healthcare administration from Virginia Commonwealth University. Virginia through and through. Dr. Banas was a health IT fellow at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, ONC, and has testified before the U.S. Senate on Health IT and the Meaningful Use Program. His interests center on the role of big data and analytics on patient outcomes and on novel forms of clinical decision support outside the realm of traditional rules and alerts, including real-time dashboarding, intuitive usability design, which, of course, can have a huge impact on decisions that are made. Uh, he also helped spearhead the VCU effort to participate in the Open Notes Initiative, where patients have real-time access to their clinical documentation. And in 20, 2017, Colin was honored with the HIMSS AMDIS Physician Executive of the Year Award. Just a great background to have this conversation. Welcome, Colin, and thanks for spending the time with me today. Thanks, Stephen. I think I need to trim that down. I can't believe they made you uh, cite all that stuff. <laughs> it's all good. When you've had a long and illustrious career, it's okay to celebrate it. Let's go ahead and jump in, Colin. Can you start by telling me more, more than what I just said, about your personal and professional background? And really, how did you first become interested in health data and analytics? Yeah, I fell into it. I think I might not be too dissimilar from a lot of folks in what I call the first and second round generation of CMIOs. So I finished my residency at VCU, as you pointed out, and I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Was Felt I was good at inpatient medicine more so than outpatient medicine. So I became a hospitalist, but I also took advantage of the program that VCU offered in that basically you could go get a master's degree for almost free. And so I went and got my master's of health administration while I was a practicing hospitalist. And it as these things so often occur, it was those relationships that I made in my master's studies with a lot of the hospital administration who are also getting their a master's degree. Those relationships opened up other opportunities outside of clinical medicine. And so there was a period of time where I was a medical director for care, coordina care, care coordination. I was a medical director for utilization management. But the real breakthrough came, and you, I'm sure my mentor was, is Dr. Alistair Erskine. He was there at VCU with me. We had an instance of Cerner. We, so this is back in 05. We were up on an EMR before, the, before it was a real mainstream thing. And he and I both recognized that there was not a lot of clinical input into our electronic medical record. There was no no one was advocating for the clinicians. And so he and I started what we called the Office of Clinical Transformation. We literally got some money from the dean. We got to hire some clinicians to serve on councils to govern and influence the electronic medical record. And then from there, it just took off. And as these things so often 
Alistair moved on to a new role and guess what? I was next man up. So for 11 years, I was the CMIO before stepping away to join Dr. First in 2019. That's a great story. You're, you and I have had very parallel paths, though interestingly, you came out of the Cerner user community and I came out of the Epic user community. So we had the chance to do that a little differently. So tell me why and at what point did you decide to focus your work on medication data in particular and its management and exchange? A, a huge portion of my prior role prior to joining Dr. First was patient safety. We have the benefit of the EMR is one constant that touches all of the patients and changes and things that you can influence at the medical record level have the opportunity to systematize, to routinize, to impact patient care, to make it to make it easy to do the right thing and make it really hard to do the wrong thing when done correctly. Patient safety is, has been in my blood for 20 years. It was just from the top down in my former role, it was the thing that starts it all. When I joined Dr. First, their particular expertise is in medication management space. The company started as an e-prescribing provider over 22 years ago. So before e-prescribing was a thing, when we were still carrying around paper pads, Dr. First was trying to innovate and push this thing along. And from a company that has its genesis in e-prescribing, you can imagine there's an all bunch of offshoots that are related to medication management, medication safety. And so when I joined the company, my background in patient safety combined with their expertise in medication management, it's hand in glove. How can I help further the medication safety aspect of what the company is accomplishing? That makes a lot of sense. So that was a big shift, though, for you to go from the health system side to become the CMO at Dr. First. You've been there quite some time. How, what motivated you to make that particular change? I think the industry was was tough. And I bet you could wax poetic on this as well. You have the benefit, and I applaud you for this, you're still seeing patients. So you're staying connected, whereas it's really hard to be a part-time hospitalist. This is a, it's almost impossible, right? So it was time to do something different. 15 years is a long time. I had, I had accumulated enough of what I called a war chest where I could be very thoughtful about my next move in terms of what I wanted to do. Was it another CMIO gig? Did I want to try to be a CIO? And while I was figuring it out, I was doing consulting for myself. And that's where I met Dr. First. And I, I've, I actually found that I really enjoyed it. So never in a million years did I think I would cross the aisle into industry but I enjoyed it and I'm still enjoying it. Four years later, here I am. That's wonderful. That's great. So you, as you say, you were a hospitalist, informaticist. I, on the other hand, was a primary care doctor. I am a primary care doctor, informaticist. Different perspectives, different needs in terms of data, in terms of decision-making. It's just a slightly different context. What in particular did you bring 
from that experience into your work in medication management, decision support, medication data exchange that you think is specific to that experience working in the acute care setting? Yeah, I know the inpatient, as you just alluded to, I know the inpatient flows pretty cold. And I thought that I had the unique perspective to help Dr. First not only craft their message around a safe medication data exchange, but also help influence the direction to say, hey guys, here's what the inpatient docs are up against, or here's what the pharmacy technicians are up against when they're trying to intake these patients. And here are the deficiencies in the flow in the EMR. And you could pick any EMR, they all have deficiencies. So how can we craft solutions to make sure that we are addressing those deficiencies, but also messaging it in a way that's going to resonate with clinicians to say, oh, that is a problem. And oh, I see that you can help with that. Because I think a lot of times, and I know I'm guilty of it, and I'm betting you are as well, we accept certain things as, well, that's the way it is. I get duplicates on my med list because that's the way it is. And a lot of it is, and again, this is two decades of perspective. I remember when I didn't have any list that I could import. So actually, I was really happy that I could get this list by pressing a button. And I knew it wasn't complete. And I knew it had problems and maybe things that were omitted or maybe things that were duplicated. But gosh, it was a lot better than having nothing to start from. And But you get a little complacent. MedRec has been an initiative for, gosh, 15 years. We're still struggling with it, right? You won't find any organization, inpatient or outpatient, that says, oh, I I have MedRec nailed. Not a problem. I'm addressing other things. And there's so much fundamental harm can come from a bad med list, a med list that gets perpetuated into the inpatient stay and back to the outpatient stay and then into your clinic. This is how patients get hurt. And so it's all back to marrying that culture of patient safety with the technology that, that we can bring to bear. That really got me excited when I joined Dr. First. That's great. Yeah. So again, this medication data is really the foundation of you know, why we're here talking today, right? You and I working at companies that are now partnering in the delivery and utility of medication data. And you brought up a really key use case, which of course is medication reconciliation. How do we get to that holy grail of knowing what a patient is taking and putting in and on and around their body at this moment, because that's so critical in informing the care that we provide in real time, whether it's in the hospital, in the ED, in a homeless shelter or or in my clinic, right? So what do you see as the technology that either has evolved or needs to evolve to really start to automate that med rec process? Because as you say, we've, we've been doing this for years and it's still far from perfect. Yeah, and this is right up your alley, especially with your expertise and now your role with Health Gorilla, but I think interoperability is a huge part of this. So right now there are deficiencies, there are gaps in medication data. 
maybe the patient didn't use insurance and now it doesn't show up in a specific feed, or maybe because it's only an insurance piece of data, it doesn't have the instructions or the SIG to go along with it. And so as we advance in our maturity towards interoperability and these sources get stitched together in a more thoughtful way, the picture will become more complete, but there also has to be thoughtful organization of that data and thoughtful cleanup of that data. So I want to make sure that I'm deduplicating, that I'm not showing you two different warfarins and one is really old and one is the more recent one. I don't need to show you the Z-Pack from two years ago because you might accidentally add that back to the list. And so there's thoughtful things that technology can automate with this, but I will also argue that nothing at this time and for what I would say the foreseeable future, nothing is going to replace the clinician making that thoughtful yes or no decision with the interview. Our goal at Dr. First is to get the clinician about 90% of the way there automated and then to make sure that there's a verification step to say, yes, they're still taking that or no, they're not taking that anymore. But I think interop is a huge part of it. And then as I mentioned before, thoughtful organization cleanup and decision support layered on top of that more complete data set. Yeah, that's great. It's interesting you mentioned that that critical step, that verification after you've done either the automated or even a manual medication reconciliation. And then you just want to put that stamp of approval on it and say, yeah, this is right. You and I discussed previously the fact that's really a process that you go through with the patient, whether you're a hospitalist, a PCP, a, a clinical pharmacist, or you name it, that at the end of that process, you say to the patient, is this right? Do I, is there anything we're missing here? What about, what are our opportunities for automating that? Giving the patient the chance through their portal or through an app or a website to look at that list and certify it and have that certification not just live in the system where you're doing that med rec, but have that go out across the framework of interoperability so that everybody who has an interest in that patient and their care knows that on Tuesday morning, this is you know what everyone agrees is the current medication list. Yeah, I, and we did talk about that. I think this is huge. I think this is greenfield green space is more patient engagement around their data. And as we discussed, it's not just the med list, right? It's the problem list. It's the allergies. It's the immunization. It's everything. And especially now that the 21st century cures and information block and the APIs are opening up and patients are having more and more access to this data, we absolutely should be utilizing them more it's even a force multiplier to get the patient to do a lot of this work ahead of time in preparation for the clinician to come along. And I think, I think the portals have started to dip their toes in this space. I still don't think it's mature enough or robust enough. I, do, I envision a world where part of the intake, I might be able to hand you the iPad and say, here's what I think your med list is, your allergy list. Why don't you go ahead and slide to the left or the right and say yes, no, and make annotation. 
And then that data comes back in so that when I'm doing reconciliation as a clinician, I can see it. And then when it's all said and done, just as you mentioned, we see that, that provenance. We see who has stamped off on this. And there's certain, there's certain weight that I think you and I would ascribe to a med list that, say, has been signed off by a pharmacist as opposed to maybe an intern, not to disparage interns. There's certain specialties that are a little bit more thorough, and the literature would show this as well, so I guess this is not too disparaging, but if I know data about the data in terms of who collected it, who stamped it, et cetera, I think that's immensely important. Absolutely. I think that your point about the provenance of the data, provenance not just who created the data, but who's touched it and what actions they've taken along the way is going to be increasingly important. Another type of data that, that is critical here for MedRAC and for MedList management is the SIG, the instructions. And I think, as you and I know, that has not heretofore been included in the U.S. core data for interoperability, the U.S. CDI, that all the EHRs have to certify against, and which really establishes that floor of data interoperability. I literally just came from an ONC workgroup meeting where we were talking about this and the potential benefit of adding that discrete structured SIG data to the packet of information that is exchanged between systems back and forth between the prescriber and the pharmacy and back again with the renewal request. What do you see as the opportunity there? And how much of a priority would you put on us driving forward the use of discrete SIGs, knowing that as a provider, you know, that it's optional in most of the systems as to whether you want to enter the SIG discreetly or as free text. Sometimes it has to be free text. And what's that balance between burden and benefit of really driving towards requiring discrete SIGs routinely? Yeah, this one is tricky. Obviously, meaningful or semantic interoperability depends on structure or at least agreed upon structure between the two exchanging entities. And so I do think codified SIG in something like an HIE exchange in the US, US CDI standard, I think that would be immensely meaningful because when things aren't structured and I'm trying to import them, I need to recreate them manually. And where you're asking a human to touch the data or to recreate or re-input the data, you're introducing an opportunity for error. It's just the one becomes an 11 because I helped the number too long or I got the frequency backward. And in the Swiss cheese model of medication errors or patient safety, enough of these things slip through and it only takes one and someone gets hurt. And so I would put a, I would put a, a high priority on the structuring of the SIG of the medication data. The interesting part is that what Dr. First is able to do until we get there is some meaningful technology to put the SIG back into structure when it is free text or to fill in the missing pieces of the SIG in a safe, an automated way through augmented intelligence. And 
while we're living in this hybrid world of free text, even though we have structure here and free text or gaps here, we can at least start to apply some technology to, uh, to address the problem until we get to that nirvana state of fully structured bouncing around the ether. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, and I love the fact that our companies are going to get to partner on the implementation of some of that, that technology. Let's transition back to decision support more broadly. You've done a lot of work in this area, and especially in the idea of user-centric design. As you were saying earlier, making it easy to do what we feel is the right thing, making it hard or even sometimes impossible to do something that is potentially dangerous or inappropriate. What do you see as the key advances as we continue to see the advancement of health IT generally, of interoperability, different business models, as we've described, how are we going to see decision support in particular evolve over the next three to five years? We're getting there. I think you and I, and while we were coming up, everything was a rule. Everything was a hard stop. Everything was a can't do this, do not pass go. It was very obtrusive. And I think good decision support is you almost don't know it's there. This is not my analogy by any means, but good decision support is like the lines on a highway. I know how to stay in my lane. I'm being guided to do, but if I need to, because, you know, I autonomy and if I need to deviate for whatever reason, because the situation demands it, I can cross those lines, right? That they're guidelines. The other thing about decision support, I think we are moving more into a, a passive decision support, a, let me show you the data about what you're about to do, but over here off to the side or as a ticker along the bottom, think of a news ticker showing you relevant information regarding the decision you're about to make. Those things aren't necessarily obtrusive. They're not stopping you, but they're guiding you. And in my former role, I got really big into dashboards and to, into passive decision support. And with Dr. First, a lot of the decision support we do is with that augmented intelligence where you don't even realize it's happening or it's happening so seamlessly that it's only when you look under the covers do you see how the data has been transformed or imported to to match what your system is expecting. Really good points. We talked a bit about the, the current medication list and the need to reconcile it and keep that up to date. But part of medication management is clearly looking at the entire history of medication use over the patient's, what medications have been tried, for what conditions, what was the impact, was there adherence, how long did they stay on it, was there a change, how come. It's very difficult to bake that kind of richness into decision support rules, right? We have a hard enough time with drug allergy, drug condition interactions, much less historical adverse drug events, et cetera. But as we exchange more data, as we collate more data, and we have this opportunity 
either in a given EHR or leveraging interoperability and HIE and data aggregation platforms to really have more of a true longitudinal view of the patient's medical journey, we're going to be in a position to take more advantage of that whole health history. This is what, what you guys do, what our company is attempting to do. And then when we have that data, we have the opportunity to not just write rules around it, but to point machine learning and augmented intelligence at that data to find those insights, the needle in the haystack, the recommendation, and to get that back into the process of decision-making. How do you see that playing out? What do you think is the reasonable timeline upon which we might expect to see benefits from these newer technologies? Depending on who you ask, like if you ask an Eric Topol he, he, or John Halamka, they'll say it is upon us. It, it is within the next five years. And I hope so. I think the example you just gave of the longitudinal medication history, I think that is a massive opportunity because a lot of what we have right now, the limitations, we might go a year back, you know, but we don't go the five years back. And if I go visit you for the first time and I'm not adept at and understanding what I have been or have not been on before, you might try a blood pressure agent on me that I've already tried and failed five years ago, or you're going to give me the cough from the ACE inhibitor that I forgot that I get. So I think there's tremendous opportunity, but I think the key is that when you start to take these large data sets and you can start to compare similar patients to other similar patients with similar med lists or similar conditions and find out what interventions have or have not worked on them because you've been able to mine the data and apply these algorithms. That's where you start to get into the really fun stuff. Hey, Dr. Lane, you have a Colin in front of you and similar patients to his age and his med list and his conditions, you should really put him on an ARB, an ARB inhibitor, instead of the ACE inhibitor that you were contemplating. That's going to be the fun stuff. I hope the next five years, but we move so slow in healthcare. We've been talking a lot of, we've, we've been talking about a lot of this for what feels like a decade. I know in Interop, you've been pushing, pushing for so long and we're finally starting to break through with the Tefkas and with the momentum, but hopefully we're at that inflection point that, that you suggest. So I love that because I think you're right. We have you and I, and so many people have invested decades in advancing our use of health IT, right? We, you and I both started on paper, I think. Back in the day, before, before there was health data, and we had to implement the systems and optimize them and connect them and champion them. And now, as you say, we're, we seem to be at an inflection point. We have the evolution of the FHIR standards for data structure and transport. We have the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, or TEFCA, as you referred to it, coming online imminently to improve interoperability for our current use cases for treatment, you know, but also increasingly for patient access to data and other use cases that are coming at us. What do you find most exciting about that as an informaticist, as a clinician, 
as an individual. What, where do you think we're going to really see the most exciting advances as we, as we, we go down this hockey stick and we see this inflection point in health data exchange and use? Yeah, tongue in cheek. From a pragmatic perspective, it would be the death of the fax machine, right? If, I, if we could finally get rid of fax machines and faxes as a methodology, I'd say that we finally pulled something off. But that's not the fun stuff, right? That's just very pragmatic. But I think that once this data starts going through the ether, and once we start having this ability to aggregate these data sets with appropriate controls and with appropriate security, you need data to pull off to pull off a lot of what you and I have been talking about. And now we're finally going to start to have access to data in more of a real time or at least in a more facile manner as appropriate. So number one, the death of the fax machine. But more importantly, I think the AI or the augmented intelligence revolution really needs interop to go hand in order to pull this off. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, we were talking a little bit about patient engagement and patient access to their data. And certainly one of the very first required use cases under TEFCA is going to be individual access services. And that, that builds on the momentum that, that you and I have both been involved in what was initially called the open notes movement. But you were very involved in that in your institution, I in mine and also nationally. But part of that, that patient engagement, we said it, it can have to do with verifying medication lists, lots of things. What do you see really as the next steps in, in patient engagement as more patients do gain access to their data, to tools to help them to understand and manage and share that? Where do you see that going? I think it's the portability of the data whether we're pulling it off through provider or facility interop, or whether I've given the patient the ability to compartmentalize that data and share it with other caregivers or share it with other uh, entities. I think there's tremendous value in terms of safety and outcomes simply from basically you're empowering the patient. And so I, individual access services Basically, is it's like the uh, the analogy around commerce or aviation. Pick your other industry where the patient really has more control and better options for how they interact with their own data or to make their own choices. That's where I get excited about interop as it relates to and basically patient empowerment. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you gave some good examples of other industries where data exchange and application programming interfaces in particular have had such a huge impact. When you're managing your money, whether you're planning your travel, what have you, ordering your groceries, the fact that the different systems can really talk to each other. It, I think that is absolutely the direction we want to go. In. Yeah. The other thing that you know, is probably born a bit out of COVID as well is 
a lot of these services are becoming more and more fragmented, right? Different niche players are jumping into this space, whether it's your pharmacy down the street, whether it's a very specialized website that wants to promote hair restoration or what have you. The fact that I can compartmentalize and share my data with these individual services, since things are starting to get more and more fragmented, means that those services and those experiences will be better and safer. And so I, it's a necessity at this point. And as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, when's the last time anybody wrote a check? You use Zelle or you have Mint to help aggregate this data. And or to, your watch, right? Yeah, <laughs> keep, yeah, exactly. And it's an exciting time. It's just, as you and I alluded to earlier, it's just so slow getting there. It is. And yet one of the advantages you and I have, having spent a career working on this, again, if you go back to where we started with prescription pads and paper charts that were often not unable to be found and always illegible, we have truly come so far. But it is interesting being in our generation of informaticists, and then you work with fresh informaticists, and they have such a different perspective with people who are digitally native, you know, millennials, et cetera. They have a whole different way of thinking about the, solving the problems, and it's really wonderful to see. But they can't write a script if the system goes down. They don't know how. There, there is that. And we'll brag to them. We remember the, uh, the old Latin abbreviations, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they care. I don't think so. <laughs> I want to talk about data sources. We've talked about medication data pretty extensively. But certainly, I think for us to be able to have some of these new decision support, new tools that we've been talking about, you really need to have a broad view of a patient's situation. And we at Health Gorilla have certainly been committed to expanding the types of medication data or types of data generally that, that are available. And again, this dispense data that, that we've partnered with Dr. First on is just one example of that. Another is work that we're doing to bring in social determinants of and there are other, certainly all sorts of data sources, you know, payer claims data, wearable data, other kinds of patient-generated health data, social service data. So many opportunities for us to have a more holistic view of a patient and their needs, and frankly, their abilities and capabilities with regard to managing their care. What do you see as some of the most important and high priority sources or types of data that we should all be working together to bring into the health and care enterprise? DOH or social determinants, that's a biggie. That's what a lot of us are all sprinting towards as a definite missing piece of the whole picture and caring for the whole patient. Again, just from a very pragmatic level immunization data that stuff should be ubiquitous that should be i shouldn't have to you know, my kids are very young and when i send them to camp i gotta approve all the this is come on like this we're in 2023 
And the fact that you know, even during the pandemic, a lot of states didn't have a way to centralize this or to share this or to, and we're walking around with paper cards. It's kind of nuts. That's, that, that's crazy. And I think the pandemic obviously was a terrible thing, but there's a couple positives that came out of it in terms of eye-opening things that needed to be addressed, the advancement of telehealth, making organizations a little bit more agile in terms of decision-making. I know I'm getting off on a tangent here, but yeah, I think the SDOH is probably a, a huge place to, to put your money down in terms of the next frontier. And I think coming back to the core topic of medication data, how talk to me a little bit about how SDOH, you know, the various social drivers of health impact medication adherence, medication management, medication optimization. Yeah, that that is a green greenfield yet again. If SDOH clearly is tied to adherence, we know certain segment segments of the population are less likely to fill their medications, whether it's cost, whether it's availability, whether it's education, understanding, et cetera. And to the extent that I can provide a lot of that information upfront to folks making decision uh, prescription decisions, I have the ability to change or influence the prescription decision. I can choose something less expensive. I can enroll you in a program. I can engage social work or a pharmacist to help guide me. Whereas absent a lot of this data and a lot of this information, actually, in the old days, I might write you a script, you might smile, walk out the door, and you'll never get it filled, and I'll never know. And at a very basic level, it's something like prices. If I knew the price of something and I could discuss that with you, then we can make a conscious decision together to either stick with that therapy or choose something else. But if I can expand upon that all the way out to SDOH and understand what else is going on in your life and other drivers to you filling and staying on that medication, then I have, the, I have more ability to influence or to engage the appropriate resources. As you've said, we've come so far and yet we have so much further to go really improve our use of data and technology to improve health. To wind up, we're doing this interview at the front end of 2023, quite a year ahead of us, potentially with all of the changes that are coming in policy and technology and medical science. What, if any, predictions do you have for the coming year? What are going to be the big news items that we look back on for 2023, especially with the advancement of, of TEFCA and the greater exchange of data that we're anticipating? You stole it. I think TEFCA will become more of a, of a, I don't know, I'm not ready to say household name just yet. I think there's a lot of us, even providers, who still don't know what TEFCA is. but. With the launch and with the announcement very soon of the QHINs and with the start of at least testing the interoperability, 
I think that's exciting. I think that's super exciting for 2023. We've been nibbling at the edges of interop for the better part of a decade, if not longer for some areas. And the fact that we can finally get everybody in the same room on a common agreement and a common set of playing rules and formats, I think that's fantastic. I think that's, it's been a long time coming and I applaud you and a lot of the other pioneers in the space because I think this is going to be a game changer. Couldn't agree more. So Colin, anything else that you wanted us to have a chance to talk about today? I I think that it's the data, right? That all, everything that we've talked about, whether it's the, how do we get the algorithms more in tune? How does the machine learning advance some of this decision support? It's, it's all dependent on the data and it's all tied back to the interoperability work that the industry has, has taken head on. And to come full circle with what you know, Dr. First sweet spot is, which is medication management, medication safety, really looking forward to what we can do together, not only Health Gorilla and Dr. First, but the industry when this data starts to flow. And so I think it's an exciting time just to reiterate what I just said. Couldn't agree more. Thank you very much for your time today. I'm really excited to have had this conversation and looking forward to hearing what kind of comments we get from people who have a chance to listen to it. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day. You too.